Secrets to Real Estate Investing, Episode 125. Welcome to the Secrets of Real Estate Investing Show, where you'll learn powerful strategies from top experts to take your investments to the next level. Here's your host and expert real estate investor, Holly McCann. Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode of Secrets to Real Estate Investing. Today we have with us a gentleman from the opposite side of the country from me. I'm in LA area, if you don't know that, Los Angeles. Um, greater LA area. And we have with us Mr. Ryan Naris, who is a mobile home expert. And I'm so excited that he is taking time out of his schedule to share some of his stories, experience, and help you guys out if you're interested in learning about mobile home park investing. So with that, welcome to the show, Ryan. Holly, I am so excited. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Well, why don't we get started by having you share with my listeners your background and how you got to where you are today. One day I woke up and I realized I was absolutely miserable working in corporate America. And I said, you know what, I can either sit here and complain about it or I can start to get to work. So quick background about me. Uh, I went to Wake Forest University. That's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina undergrad for psychology because I thought I wanted to be a salesperson, got into sales, sold cars for four years, won a bunch of awards and figured out that, oh my gosh, that is a huge amount of my time going into something where if I get hurt, like for example, I sprained my ankle playing basketball, the money stops coming in. So I realized uh, in my early 20s that I needed a way to have the money keep coming in if I want to take time off or whatever. I didn't know what that was. So what I did was I grabbed a bunch of books and then eventually I went back to Wake Forest University to get my master's in business and boom, while I was getting my master's, I discovered mobile home parks and uh, the rest is history. That's how I'm here today. Okay. That is really funny because most people studying for their MBA do not encounter mobile home park investing. It's like the furthest thing from most um, MBA students mind. I know because I did I got an MBA years ago too and there's certainly no talk of that in any of the classes that I know of. So how did you find out about it? So I'll backtrack a little bit. So while I was selling cars and I realized that that wasn't a way to create money coming in while I'm sleeping. I, I read, I challenged myself to read 50 books a year and in and amongst that I found Rich Dad, Poor Dad and the four hour work week both completely changed, game changers. Yes, right? love those. And so it was just a question of what is the business that I'm going to start. So from 2012 to 2015, um, I was just all in about reading everything I could, talking to anyone I could, and figuring out what was the answer. And while doing that, I bumped into a childhood friend who was doing the exact same thing. Um, and what we ended up deciding was, oh my God, we were perfect business partners. Perfect. What are we going to do? And this is going to sound totally silly, but one of the first ideas were mobile home parks. And Ian is my business partner. He asked me, he goes, what do you think about mobile home parks? And I said, if it's anything like the show Trailer Park Boys on Netflix, <laughs> sign me. Because I love that show. I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to watch that. Make it a note. Trailer Park Boys, huh? It was, uh, it's pretty hysterical, but you're right. All my MBA buddies thought I was nuts. My dad thought it was a scam. 
And flash forward four years later, and I'm full-time in it. We own eight properties at the moment in May of 2019. And we own a hair over 500 lots, and it's my full-time job, which is cool. Wow. Okay. Well, why don't you take us back to your very first deal? Yes. So we actually established a great relationship with a broker. She was an up-and-comer. And what we did for her is we helped her with her underwriting because Ian is a finance guy. I'm the operations and marketing guy. So what Ian did was said, I'm going to help you with your marketing packets if you'll give me first look at some deals. And so we found a medium-sized mobile home park in the Durham area of North Carolina because we were helping this broker out. So it was a 1.525 mil acquisition, 89 lots. She brought it to us. And this was about nine months into deciding this is what we both wanted to do. So it took a while to actually get our first deal. And then we didn't close it until September of 16. So it took from July of 15 to September of 16 to actually get our first one under the belt. It took a long time. But the funny thing about that is that deal was fantastic from top to bottom. And Ian and I went to 40 banks to try and get the deal bought. And I am proud to report (laughs) we got 40 no's. 40 bank rejections on a deal that has done nothing but perform. And in order to actually get that deal bought, we had to pull in a favor from our investors, which was totally embarrassing, right? Hey, look, got my MBA. We're starting this business. You're my investor. By the way, I can't actually buy this. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So So explain to us more why the banks said no, if you can. (laughs) Sure. One big reason is my investors were out of California and the banks, although they liked the debt coverage ratios and the pro formas and how everything looked, they couldn't get on board with the fact that little Ian Ryan with two pennies to rub between the two of them, if if it went default, who is going to be the collateral on that loan? Because it was not quite big enough to qualify for non-recourse debt. Mm. And our investors had tons of money, but According to the legal teams, it would be just a pain in the butt to have to chase after the investors for their recourse. So that was the biggest sticking point. So they ended up having a bank that was wicked comfortable with them. That's how we ended up getting that deal bought. Wow. What I mean, you gave so much information just in that story. And... You know, frequently it is said in the real estate investing world, if you find a great deal, the money will follow. The money will find you. You will find the money. Like that's frequently said. And you had a good deal and yet you still encountered a challenge, but you pushed through it and you found a solution. That is like the key to being a successful entrepreneur is solving problems, solving problems for a profit. You find a way to make it work. So did you have that problem on any future deals as well, or was it just that first time? So I love that you said that because it's so true. They always say, find the deal first, the money will come. And I think I learned the hard way that that's not always necessarily the case. 
And what I've discovered about entrepreneurship is exactly that. There are so many random hurdles that you just have to be prepared for. So if you don't truly love what you're doing, you're going to quit because you're going to eventually get hit by something where you're like, uh, that's it, I'm out. So our second deal, we did the exact opposite. We already had the investor lined up. He was cool with recourse and we kind of understood how to talk to banks our second go around to get more comfortable with it. So <clears throat> our second deal was in North was in North Carolina again, but our investor this time was out of Florida. And this time we found a local bank, understood how to talk with them, and we've ended up doing about $2 million worth of deals with that bank, and we're, we love them. So it ended up being a happy ending, but I, I just feel like that's entrepreneurship in general. Here's a really random hurdle. You're going to have to you're going to think you're never going to overcome it. But when you do, you're so much better prepared for that next random thing that comes up. Yes. Very popular phrase that I use so much throughout my life is you don't know what you don't know. Like you have no idea. And I like to use the analogy of like a kindergartner learning addition and subtraction. And then when they introduce, you know, like later in school, like multiplication, like when you're learning addition and subtraction, you have no idea multiplication exists, let alone calculus. You know, so you're just going through step by step as an entrepreneur coming across different hurdles like, oh, can I get over that one? Okay, now I got another one. And you don't know what you don't know <laughs> until you encounter it. And it's great to have access to peers and mentors to help you. But if not, you just like you probably asked the banks, I'm assuming, what would you, what would have made you say yes to the deal? What are you looking for? Because like it just makes you that much better and sharper for the next go around, right? Exactly. Exactly. And and you also have to read between the lines of what they're saying because you're not talking to the underwriter. You're talking to the salesperson. Yes. And they're always, always gonna give you the rose-colored glasses. So mentors were huge because they helped us kind of figure out how to talk to bankers and figure out what their objections were. Right. And then how to, how to make it easy for them to say yes. Right. You anticipate now you put to, you can put together a package probably a lot better and easier than you could your first round because you kind of know what they're looking for and how to make it easy for them to say yes. Right. Exactly. I know what they're looking for, what they kind of need in the package, but they're not really going to look at. And then I know what, a lot of times what questions they're going to ask before they even ask them. And at this point in time, I've already done it enough times to know what I'm going to say before I even have to say it. That's so awesome. it just all comes with time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So do you have anything more you can share with that first deal? You gave us all the acquisition. Do you still own it or have you sold it? I still own it. I'm proud to report uh, we still do. We've gotten a bunch of unsolicited offers on it, which is exciting for more than what we bought it for, which is really cool. I am a, a person who likes to roll up his sleeves and do really hard work. And I am proud when I buy something at or above appraisal value and then find out 12 months, 24 months later that it's worth more because of my hard work. Right. So yeah, that one's been great. Uh, it, it allowed us to speak with so much more confidence. So what I'll say to all your listeners who haven't quite done their first deal yet, 
you don't necessarily need to hit a home run on your first one. I even know some folks who've been doing it for years who laugh about how bad their first one went. You will speak so much more confidently if you can just have one under your belt. So definitely look to, if you can survive to the next round, you definitely ought to uh, try to get in the game. That's awesome. So can you tell us about what you did to improve the value of that first deal? Sure. So bringing in homes was a big thing. Um, I can speak Spanish. It's not great. We say es bastante, which means it's enough, or <laughs> funciona, which means it works. And speaking with tenants face to face. So what I've discovered, so I own in Durham, Asheville, Charlotte, Tallahassee, I owned in Atlanta, looking at one in Augusta, Georgia. And what I've learned in Spartanburg, South Carolina, what I've learned about each one of those cities is that each one has a completely different submarket. And within even the same county, it can be completely different. And what I found in Spartanburg was I had a waiting list for one of my properties. And then I bought another one, not even 20 minutes away in the same county. No one wanted it. And my marketing plan had to be completely revamped because no one was responding to my marketing. Mm -hmm. So what I've kind of learned is that if you're willing to tinker, fail, and keep going, and most importantly, dump an absurd amount of hours into the marketing, you'll eventually figure it out. So with our first one and our subsequent ones, we learned the power of Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist and Zillow and word of mouth and even bandit signs to, because my goal is when I buy a property with Parkone Homes where the, you inherit mobile homes with it, is I want to sell them off because it's just a thousand times easier just to own the, and rent the dirt, even though in some cases it's not as profitable. So it's, it's definitely been fun getting bad people out, bringing good people in and hearing some of the, the kind words the residents have to say about, wow, like I can talk to you in my own language face to face. The other guys lived in some other state, just threw money at it and never showed up. And I can actually talk to the owner face to face. It's a game changer. And then they tell all their friends. Um, yeah. So that's a long winded way of saying it's a lot of time and a lot of putting yourself out there to, to, to grow your, your, your properties. Wow. So do you do online marketing in Espanol as well? <laughs> sí, es muy importante. Porque hay personas en los dos idiomas. I don't know how many folks, uh, my Spanish is atrocious, by the way. Uh, but yes, absolutely. So Facebook is great because a lot of Spanish folks are on Facebook. A lot of them don't use Craigslist. A lot of times there's a Craigslist in Spanish, like I said, that no one uses. And what I find about this, the Spanish market is a lot of them are so obsessed with working, it's hard to catch them, mm. except when they go out to eat or they go to the churches. So we go to the local hole-in-the-wall restaurants. We speak Spanish to the waiters and waitresses. We go to the iglesias. We, we meet the priests. And we go to those little community events where I know on weekends, here's where you're going to be. And I hand out flyers. And I found that to be incredibly effective. Once you meet the connector and the influencer within the community and you build that trust, kata a kata, face to face, 
it's a game changer. Awesome, really clever. And that's a lot of work and it's intimidating for you, for people that can't see you. He's a white guy, folks. So he's <laughs> to go speak his less than perfect Spanish to people that um, speak it fluently, but good for you, Ryan. I mean, that could, I, I would be intimidated, um, but yeah, I'm impressed. My husband is a Spanish speaker in our house and I laugh when I see people um, laughing at him as he speaks his not very good Spanish, but hey, he gets the job done. So yeah. Well, thank you. I think selling cars for four years and basically getting rejected every single day I showed up just kind of taught me how you put yourself out there. It's embarrassing, but guess what? You grew a little bit. And in time, all of a sudden you have something that works. And if you don't mind people laughing at you and I, my Spanish residents call me El Americano, which I, I'd like to think is just the American, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're making fun of me. But here's oh, yeah. the thing. My properties are full with good people. And for the most part, they pay on time and they don't cause trouble. And, and it's more than just the Hispanics too, but it's taking that time and not being afraid to get made fun of or look silly or be wrong that I think made all the difference in the world. Oh yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Well, let's um, talk about a couple more of your deals and the, the details of them. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about your most challenging deal or your best deal, but I'd love to hear another story, another case study. Lay it on us. Sure. So the sixth or seventh property I bought was another one in Spartanburg. So I own three in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. And the third one I bought, I it was a stable property and I paid market for it. Usually I'm a heavy value add guy. I like to go in, bring homes in, kick bad people out, bring good people in and just t dump a ton of time in person face to face on my properties. So my idea was, well, why don't we, we pay market for a stable one rather than pay pennies on the dollar for one that's just atrocious. And so we paid more than we normally pay for one that turned out not to be stable at all. Oh, it was a, it was atrocious. It was atrocious. So I feel like we really paid up for it. When you say atrocious, define that for us because I'm not a mobile home park investor yet. No. <laughs> so what makes it bad? We bought a 36 lot property with 27 rentals. So 27 homes were ours. And they were all on weekly rentals, which normally isn't that big of a deal. It's kind of a headache accounting wise, but eventually we're able to switch everyone to month to month and you have natural turnover anyway. But we ended up turning over about a third of our residents. We also got whacked with a tax bill that was totally my fault. We checked the back taxes on 25 of 27 homes. And I don't know how I did this, but I just missed two mobile homes, which had back taxes of, I think, $3,000. So we got whacked there. We got whacked on our annual taxes. And we ended up having just a ton. We walked through the homes and the homes looked great. But then once people started leaving, we started realizing, oh, we got the horse and pony show to a certain degree. And a lot of times people don't speak up when something goes wrong. So we ended up having like $12,000 in January of just maintenance issues. So oh. we dramatically left 
not enough money in the bank account when we closed. So it was a great lesson. So it was a, it was a, a tough phone call for me to call up my investor and go, uh, hey, we need you to kind of give us more money here. And also, like I mentioned before, we already owned in Spartanburg, so we thought we had the marketing down pat. But since this was on the north side of Spartanburg, a little bit outside of downtown, and our other ones were closer to the city, it was a totally more rural type of tenant, which we didn't know how to market to. So flash forward to now May, from now May, we're rocking and rolling, we're full, we got a lot of bad people out, and a lot of good people in, but it was a bit of a nightmare for a while, because we were like, oh my gosh, did we just get ourselves in way over our heads, and are we going to take a loss on this property? But I'm proud to report now that I think we uh, will hopefully at least break even on this property this year, and next year everything should be a-okay, and and actually stable now. Wow. Boy, that's got to be frustrating when you think, okay, we're going to pay more and we're going to get more and then you don't. Oh my gosh. So are they still all owned? Um, Well, you said you had 36 lots, 27 were park owned and the rest were individually owned or were they empty lots? Correct. Those were individually owned. And we are in the process of selling them as they leave. So our big thing is I'm not interested in displacing anyone who's following the rules and paying the rent. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Affordable housing is really hard to come by. So I want to be fair to my folks, especially if, for example, they help with the plumbing on the property. We have a few folks who anytime there's a package or something, we bought materials for them and they go out and they do it on their own. A lot of folks will cut the grass and we'll pay them to cut the grass. And people who are invested in the community, I want to keep no matter what. Oh, yes. As long as it, you know, as long as it's it's a win for them and a is a win for us. So I'm not in the business to kick anybody out if they're paying and they're good folks. And so I think we've sold maybe a half of those homes. I don't have the exact numbers in front of us, but yeah, that's uh, that is our goal. Is as folks want to leave, we'll bring in new folks as owners, not as renters. Right, get them to take responsibility for it more. So, why don't you tell us about your best deal, if you can choose one that was your very best deal so far? So, there's been a lot of a lot of things I'd like to consider my best deal, but I think probably my favorite deal to talk about is we'll just stick there in Spartanburg was what I bought called Countryside. Countryside is zoned for 68 lots. So it's a small to medium sized property. And there were, I believe, 52 homes on the property. And 45 of them were owned by the community. And they were in atrocious shape. The property had effectively taken losses for four years in a row. And this was the only property that I have ever had trouble falling to sleep before the night of closing. Because I I went, gosh, this is risky. Because we're inheriting so many homes and they're atrocious and the area's a little rougher. And there's rumors that there's crime in the area. So I was really scared for a lot of reasons. But I ended up going either Ian or myself were on that property every single day for the first 90 days. And we have sold almost every single home that was in February of 18, we bought it. It's now May of 19. So we're at about the 15 month mark. We've brought in homes. We've got 60 homes on the property now. So we've brought in about eight homes and we've got a couple more that are coming in. So we're, we're pushing towards that 68 number. 
and we are full. I can't, I have a waiting list. I, I don't, I, there are two homes I haven't even brought in yet as of this recording that are effectively already sold. Wow. And it's all, all because we tapped the marketing for that, that county. And I'm proud to say we're refinancing that property for a lot more than we, we bought it for because we got bad people out. We got good people in. People are excited and happy to be there. We're starting to create a little bit of a community and we're, we, it's diverse. We've got Spanish speakers. We've got, we've got every, about every nationality you can, every race in there, and we're proud of it. And it's all because I rolled up my sleeves and I went to the property every single day. And I have a wonderful blow-up mattress. I'm not afraid to sleep at the property <laughs> if I have to. So in terms of was it a win for the tenants? Because that's my first thing. Yes, absolutely. We partner with PayLease so folks can pay online. And every time they pay online, it positively reports to their credit. We also, nice. started, a, we also started a scholarship too, a partial scholarship. And our first recipient was in Countryside, which we're really excited about. She wants to be an, an, an engineer at a, and go to a local college there. And we approved her. So what I want to tell my, the story I want to tell is, we were able to we we're able to help you build your credit and help you send your kids to college while giving you a safe and clean community while working with you to install volleyball or basketball or soccer while working with you cuz my customer i think a lot of people get this wrong that they think their customer is their investor no your customer are the people living there and if they're happy, your investors will be happy. So that's yeah. probably my favorite story. I think uh, the, the, the tenants, it's, it's like wildfire anytime I have something available there. And, and obviously for me, it's allowed me to, to go full-time in my dream and stay full-time in my dream. So I, I think and our investors tickled. I think all around my investors, my tenants, myself, were all thrilled with that property. So I have to say that's probably my, my favorite if I had to pick one. Do you um, mind sharing how the um, structure of your deals works? It sounds like you have bank financing and then investor financing. And of course you have to be in there as an owner as well. Do you mind sharing how that works? Absolutely. So every deal is completely dependent on the deal. I do not have a fund. And the reason why I didn't want to create a fund structure is because I don't want to feel pressure to place capital. So in other words, if I went out and raised two to five million bucks and then I didn't place it in time, I'd have to give that money back and talk about going back to an investor with an egg on your face. Hey, I promise you this and here's all your money back. Yeah. So I don't want to have to feel like I have to place capital. So I basically raise friends and family money. And with that, each deal is completely dependent on is there recourse or not? Do we have to bring in a lot of homes? Is it going to be capital intensive? So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Um, one easy rule of thumb is a preferred structure. So for example, we've done an 8-pref, an 8% preferred return with a split. So that split can either be 50-50, 80-20. A lot of apartment deals are 80-20. It can be somewhere in that range, 80-20, 70-30, whatever, whatever. Alternatively, what we've been able to do is have our investor match dollar for dollar what we put in, which has ended up being a good way to do it. 
typically speaking, I own less than half of the deals myself. Obviously, there's myself and Ian. So there's two of us. But our big thing is we started with nothing. I had more student loan debt than I had actual capital to invest. So I am forced to use other people's money to grow my portfolio. And that has been a blessing in disguise because, and I talk about this on my podcast, say you have $200,000 and you have a deal that you could buy that gives you, say, a 20% return annual on that $200,000. Well, if you bought that property for $200,000 all in and you got a 20% return on that, that would be $40,000 a year, which depending on your family situation and life situation may not be enough for you to go full time, but let's say it was enough for you to go full time. That's not enough money for you to take to eat and reinvest in your deals. So the beauty of other people's money is say, for example, you have an investor type situation where you can take say $25,000 buy an identically performing deal and they match every penny you put in. So, if you did eight deals like that at $25,000 a piece and they match $25,000, you wouldn't have $200,000 in equity. You'd have $400,000 in equity. So you will have day one doubled your money. That $40,000 becomes $80,000. You can now eat comfortably and reinvest in your property uh, or, and reinvest and buy more properties. But also, because you own eight properties, you also now have a portfolio, which inherently means it's worth more. So you could refinance, get money out tax-free. Your, your equity counts as more. So the beauty of other people's money is you can stretch your dollar. Whereas if you put all 200,000 in one deal, you're done. And I wish I had anywhere close to 200,000 to start. I had a pathetic amount of money to start, but you can do it too. If you haven't started, all your listeners who haven't started, you can do it too. Awesome. Hey, um, would you share, in your opinion, what you think re a reasonable rate of return is for someone to expect in the mobile home investing world? A range, you know, of returns. Sure. Uh, it's a moving target, but I think it was Deutsche. I think Deutsche Bank just put out one, and JLL puts out national ones all the time. Nationally, cap rates are a bit below six percent for the bigger, more institutional properties. If you're in California, Florida, bigger states like that, you're probably looking sub four cap. Right now, if you can get an 8% cap rate, that's a pretty darn good deal. I would say I buy properties between 6% and 8% cap rates. I also have bought things at technically negative cap rates where it literally has been losing money for a long time because I'm a heavy value add guy. But what I'm seeing on the more macro side is people are comfortable buying these at around a 6% and are willing to go below that. But if you go smaller, more rural, you can command an upwards of an eight. I've heard of above eight more than on more than one occasion. It's just once you start getting below 50 lots, more rural, private utilities, you can justify a higher cap rate as a, as a purchase. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, just to give people a, a general idea. Awesome. Well, um, Ryan, we're getting near the end of our show, so I'd love to have you talk about um, what we're offering for our free giveaway this week. So um, go ahead and tell us about your due diligence worksheet that we're going to be kicking out to our listeners. If you are interested in mobile home parks, 
you need this due diligence list. It includes things like I talked about earlier, how I only checked 25 of 27 mobile home titles to see if they had back taxes on it. I have made mistakes that have cost me thousands of dollars. I even have an entire episode on it on my podcast where I talk about how I didn't check the water bills and there was a huge water leak I just missed. I have been compiling and it's been a working document for the last four years of doing mobile home parks. If you are interested in mobile home parks, this is free. It is every every mistake I have ever made and some on how to diligence on mobile home parks. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being willing to share that. So listeners, you can get this free download by going to hardhatholly.com forward slash 125 because we are episode 125. Or alternatively, you can text, if you've got your phone, without your phone, you're going to send a text to the number 38470. 38470, you're going to text hard hat with no spaces in between it to 38470. And you just send the word hard hat to that number and you'll get a reply back. And we will send you once a week updates when we have new podcasts along with the free downloads that you can access. So Ryan, thank you so much for sharing that. It's gonna be super helpful for people who are considering investing in the mobile home world. Can you now share with us how people can learn more about you, where they can find you and go from there? Yes, so my name is Ryan Narus. That's N-A-R-U-S. My website's probably the easiest way to do it. It's just archimedesgrp.com or if you just Google Ryan Narus, it's the first thing that comes up. Please, by all means, I love meeting people. I don't care where you are, Canada, Mexico, California, Alaska, wherever, or what type of real estate you're in. Actually, one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned was from a guy trying to break into home flipping. And I helped him out big time, and he's helped me out big time. So it doesn't matter where you are in the United States, Europe, wherever, I would love to connect with you and help you out any way I can. Awesome. It's so nice. Ryan, you have such a big heart, I can tell. And I appreciate you just being willing to share and that you care about the residents in your park. I mean, it's really refreshing that you're not just this removed, pulled back investor that has layers between them. You're not afraid to meet the residents or talk to other investors, help people how you can. And I think you're blessed because of it. You've got all kinds of great things going um, due to that. So Thank you so much for the kind words and that your social media presence is outstanding, by the way. Oh. I have to pay you that compliment uh, so your listeners can hear it too, because I know they're thinking it too. And I got to write back at you. Thank you for all the content you put out there. It really does help a lot of people, even those not in what you're doing. So thank you too. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Well, with that, I um, want to just ask you final parting words of advice for people that are considering following in your footsteps in the mobile home park investing world, what is the advice that you would give them? So if you've ever seen the movie Austin Powers, or I can't remember which one it was, but there's a a fat bad guy who (laughs) says, I'm, he says, I'm unhappy because I eat and I eat because I'm unhappy. (laughs) And I love that line. It's hysterical but it's the same way in real estate if you substitute a few words out. So I mentioned earlier, one of the most important lessons I learned in my life was from a a home flipper. And he hit me with that line exactly, where he said, 
I want to go full time in this home flipping business, but I can't because I don't have enough deals. And I don't have enough deals because I'm not full time. So whether it's mobile home parks or home flipping or, or really anything in real estate, my best advice has got to be, be willing to bet big on yourself. Because if you can find a way to get full time, even if you have more student loan debt than, than cash like I did or no experience like I did or didn't know anyone, I had no network like I did. If you can find a way to eat, to monetize something, whether it's doing your own accounting or doing your own property management, however you can scrape by to get full time by not having to show up to work at 9 a.m. and leave at 5 p.m. and be exhausted and therefore not look for good deals, by just getting rid of that, if you can bet big on yourself and devote finding deals full time, it doesn't matter if the market is insanely hot or cold with opportunities everywhere, you can do it if you're willing to bet big on yourself. Awesome, well said, I love it. Thank you so much. And with that, perfect wrap up to the show, listeners. Take some action, move forward in your investing goals, and make it a great day. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for listening today. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review our show, and let us know in your review what you'd like to hear more of. For the show notes and free downloads for this episode and all others, go to hardhatholly.com.